Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. This is a Currents episode. Currents are shorter and less heavily produced than our full-length episodes and generally focus on a single topic. As always, links to books, articles, and organizations mentioned are available on the episode page at jimrutshow.com. That's jimrutshow.com. Today's guest is John Robb. John's been on the show a couple of times. He's our go-to guy on military stuff, intelligence stuff, and strategic stuff. And today we're going to talk about that most amazing intersection of all the above, the current mess and how we got there in Afghanistan. And by the way, those who want to know more about John and his thinking, check him out on Patreon, John Robb at Patreon. I've been a subscriber, I think, since you put the damn thing up, and it's been well worth the five bucks a month or whatever it is I pay to get your insights. So, John, Afghanistan. Let's start with, before we get into deeper issues, and you've been doing some interesting thinking about this, what's the current news out of Afghanistan to the best of your knowledge? The U.S. military has a relatively small presence in, in Kabul. And there are tens of thousands of Afghanis as well as U.S. and international citizens that are still trying to get out. The international section of the airport at Kabul Airport is shut down. And the um, military is is doing all the evacuations now. Mm, So all the airlines have stopped. Right. And they're trying to do, you know, one flight an hour. And that can range between, you know, a couple hundred people in a smaller plane to five, six hundred in some of the larger ones. Big C5 or something, right? Right. Yeah, so it's 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 precarious. I mean, we're right on the edge of maybe pulling it off or or landing in a military catastrophe. I mean, you never want to be in a situation where you know you're completely surrounded and unable to fully respond, and you know at the at the mercy of the Taliban. I call it the uh, Blanche Dubois strategy, <laughs> right? You know where she says in you know Streetcar Named Desire is like. I've always relied on on the uh, the kindness of strangers, and so we're relying on the kindness of the Taliban to let us complete this mission. And as you and I both know, two mortars is all it would take to shut the airport down, right? Because you know they're they're right there, right? So you know, two shitty ass eighty two millimeter Russian mortars, airport closed. So clearly, it's at the sufferance of the Taliban. I don't know if we threatened them or bribed them or what, but at least so far. They haven't turned this thing into the total humiliation that they could. Uh, they're still maneuvering. They're still, you know, moving up forces. There have been a couple incidents that have, particularly that uh, C5 departure from a couple days ago, where they, you know, you had all that video footage of, you know, people running along with the C5, trying to climb up in the gear, getting crushed underneath the wheels, and then eventually being dropped out of the landing gear. You know, the C5 landed and they found people dead, obviously, inside the landing gear. It shut down the plane. It's a, you know, horrible circumstance, traumatic for the crews, obviously, and the people involved. And it was a, a, a big black mark against the, the U.S. operation and, and the thinking. They just didn't have control of the airport. Yep. And now, uh, again, maybe this is with the uh, cooperation of the U.S., apparently the Taliban are now blocking access to the airport, at least on the ground. And they're not letting people walk onto the airport grounds anymore. And they may be doing it for their own reasons, or they, frankly, it's possible they're being done at the request of the U.S., well, they're controlling the flow, right? So they, they control the civilian side of the airport, which is on the other side. So, you know, part of the U.S. thinking was that they were going to let the uh, civilian airlines run 
a good portion of the evacuation. Well, that's gone. That's over. That's not happening anymore. And that now they can, you know, the Taliban can decide when to send crowds in. They can, you know, as you said, it's at their sufferance. They could send crowds in. The simplest ordinance could shut the airport right down. You can't operate an airport under artillery fire. And we do know that the Taliban have plenty of light weapons like mortars and RPGs and what have you. So they're clearly allowing it to proceed for their own purposes. Right. I mean, there's you know, thousands of U.S. military troops or, or they can respond with incredible amounts of violence. But here, here's the situation is that the, the Taliban are now in a city amongst you know five million inhabitants, have a populated city. And, and any kind of response that we have against Taliban mortars or anything, it would end up leveling the city or just you know killing thousands of, of, of Afghan citizens. In the process. Yeah, they, they've got us. They've got us. So the question will be, will they let us go in peace or not? Right. And, you know, they don't have to. So it's interesting. You know, we're now, you know, the U.S. has frozen uh, billions of dollars of Afghani assets. It'd be interesting to see if that ends up being a uh, negotiation. You know, we'll let you guys escape unskinned in return for our assets. That's a possibility. Oh, that's that's clearly going on behind the scenes right now. And, and the progress on that negotiation being declared a you know a sovereign entity, uh, being taken off the terrorist watch list, both as individuals as as well as a group, and all the restrictions associated with that in terms of blocking their trade, and then access to all the assets of the uh, Afghan National Bank, and, and and being able to claw back all the money that was stolen by the uh, people inside the government who fled. Well, they may get some of that back. They may not. Depends how slick the uh, thieves were. Right. So I was just checking the news wires, and apparently there was a spokesman for the U.S. government saying that they have no evacuation plans for those outside of Kabul, including U.S. citizens. Right. Maybe as many as 10,000. Exactly. Or we don't have any uh, plans for getting people who are trapped inside of Kabul that are on the other side of the line. They can't even get across the city and into the, the U.S. Occupied area. Now they were flying helicopters from some residential areas and from the embassy. Are they still doing that? I don't think I haven't seen anything recently that I mean very specific U.S. facilities, sure, but not to get out the private security folks and different groups that were actually operating in, in areas of Kabul that were taken over. Yeah, so this could turn much worse for the Americans. It's already a shit show for the Afghani's, but. 10,000 Americans are taken hostage by the Taliban, that would not be good. Yeah, it's very close to becoming a siege. So we're in this evacuation mode, and if the Taliban wanted, they could turn it into a siege where tens of thousands of people, thousands of U.S. military are, are trapped inside this the city with, with no exit. Yeah, and as you say, probably some behind-the-scenes negotiations to see if that can be avoided. Correct. I mean, and, of course, the demands on, on the Taliban side are going to be substantial. Yeah, and if I was them, I'd be uh, using the fuck out of my levers before it goes away. Yep. Interesting. Well, let's do as we like to do on the show. We update on the facts, but let's get to the underlying dynamics. You know, and let's start with, you know, sort of the most obvious one. What the hell kind of intelligence failure was involved here or lying, or both, right? Just a month ago or less, the administration was saying, oh, this is a well-armed, well-trained military outfit. Yeah, who knows how it's going to all play out, but nothing's going to happen rapidly. And then, boom, in 10 days, collapse. I mean, that's an intelligence fiasco or conscious lies of prodigious proportion. Yeah, there's uh, been decision-making failures at, at all levels. The top level would be the White House, you know, allocating responsibility or command of, of this withdrawal 
uh, this exit to the diplomacy folks, to the State Department, and giving them authority over it and, and basically declaring that the military portion of the operation is over. It's done. And not really paying any, any attention to that. And not switching when it was apparent that the conditions were changing, that we were moving towards a military operation. And then you have the kind of the operational level. You know, you have the military not seeing, you know, what was going on or not recognizing what was going on in the Afghan military and the Afghan government. Uh, something that, you know, virtually everybody had been seeing and reporting on who had been stationed there, troops and, and civilian personnel that had rotated in and out had all been reporting that the, the morale was low, the corruption was uh, pervasive. They just would not stand and fight. Even if individuals were, you know, in the Afghan military were were, were brave and, and willing to stand, they, if you're not surrounded by people willing to do the same, it's just suicide to do so. And, you know, we didn't see that. We were fighting a guerrilla war and we didn't treat it like a guerrilla war. And the, the, the victory in, in this guerrilla war would be the collapse of the Afghan military and the Afghan government. They weren't going after the morale of the, of the U.S. military per se. That wasn't the primary target. And so we didn't detect that. And then uh, there was this specific elements on the tactical side in terms of the, the evacuation. It was clear maybe a week ago, uh, a little bit more, that Kabul was going to be taken shortly. Uh, it, there was no resistance from the Afghan military. It was just dominoes. It was just going, going, going. You know, deals cut in the background, threats being made over telephone and mobile phone. Taliban had done their work. They had lists. They knew who to talk to to cause it to collapse very quickly. And that... The U.S. military didn't make any contingency plans and they didn't you know, react to the evolving situation. In particular, they relied specifically on getting everybody out through the, the Kabul International Airport, just a single runway, you know, high altitude, had civilian side. It's right in the middle of, of, a, of a, a five to six million person city, completely indefensible. And uh, they thought that they could get everyone out through that, even if they were in an occupied city. Uh, what they should have done and what should have been kind of acted upon uh, almost immediately was that they should have opened up all other alternatives on the evacuation. Uh, Bagram was the you know primary military base. It's north of Kabul, a short helicopter flight away. You could even run convoys to it if you needed to. It's a defensible location. Okay, You could make it so that anyone who's around it is a target, not in the middle of a, a five million person city. And that uh, you know had a runway, a major runway plus a uh, taxiway that could be turned into a runway and all the facilities. Now, that airport, that uh, airbase, was evacuated a while ago, and it was still in the hands of the Afghan army uh, up until Saturday night. So they could have potentially retaken it, and then they would have two options of getting out. And you could still run the planes in and out at a, at a much accelerated rate, and they would, wouldn't be all relying on this, on this one airport. So the Taliban took it on, on Saturday night. They released the 5,000 prisoners that were being held there. And retaking it is tough, would be tough at this point. And probably a bulk of the operation to retake it would actually have to be launched out of out of the forces already in Kabul. This sounds like a classic military. I mean, the military owns that failure, presumably, or were they muscled by the uh, civilian side, do you think? Oh, well, it, it, they didn't switch the leadership when it was clear that, you know, if you looked at it from a military theory standpoint, and it's just great as an example of it. I mean, you had the guerrilla war, which is fought in the, you know, Boyd's moral dimension. It was a classic guerrilla war. You're, you're, you're taking action to kind of weaken the the attraction, the, the strength of the, the opposing forces uh, um, cohesion. And um, that worked flawlessly, given how quickly the, the Afghan military and, and, and government fell. But it switched to a maneuver war. They switched to you know rapid movements, rapid transients, 
you know, changing goals, changing objectives, swarming the country, uh, mobilizing resources and, and using those movements to keep U.S. forces on, on the back heel. Typically in maneuver warfare, your objective is to damage the decision-making capacity, the psychology of the enemy, uh, make it impossible for them to make decisions. Uh, we should have recognized that shift had occurred and then switched it over to a military control. We're, we were still in this kind of diplomatic control, which is really more in the moral sphere, trying to appeal to the, you know, the self-interest of different groups, trying to appear like you're morally superior, you're doing the morally correct thing. You know, we didn't make that switch. And so all of this last piece has been in the military's hands and they haven't really taken control. They haven't built those options. It's, you know, how do you turn something like this evacuation into a military disaster? This is this has become a kind of a textbook case. It only hasn't turned into a disaster so far because of the toleration by the Taliban would be my, you know, they could turn it into a disaster whenever they want. Right, right. And putting it in their hands. And that's never where you want to be. And they got the <laughs> leverage. Yeah. Now, as, a, as a, somewhat of a student of military history and strategy, I was impressed by the Taliban. They did the somewhat unexpected by launching a major offensive in the north, which had historically been the uh, seat of resistance to the Taliban. All the northern cities fell. Boom, 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 boom. In about 10 days, I said, holy shit, Batman. Someone knows what they're doing because this totally breaks the will of the Afghani government. Because if you don't have the North as a redoubt, at least a potential redoubt, again, a big piece of leverage in terms of you know negotiating a settlement with the Taliban just went away. Because for listeners who don't remember, it was the Northern Alliance, because the Uzbeki people and the Tajiki peoples and other Northern peoples who united with the U.S. support overthrew the Taliban back in 2001, 2002. And with the Taliban had gutted that potential source of resistance, there was no reason for them to negotiate anymore. They basically had won a strategic victory in terms of the military situation by a somewhat unanticipated marshalling of their resources to take the north before they then turned to Kabul, which I thought was quite brilliant. Yeah, you, you use your surprise effectively. I mean, you get one chance at, at surprise and that was it. And it destroyed the potential redoubt of the resistance. So there was no reason for them to negotiate. Okay, guys, we took the north. There's no way to oppose us, right? The central plains can't, uh, the Kabul region can't oppose us. It's just too easy for us to dominate militarily. The north kind of hard to dominate militarily, but we took all the cities, people. Sorry, you're out of luck. You have no place to rally. Uh, so you're just going to have to, we're just going to take over. No negotiation. Brilliant. I think this will go down in the books. Whoever the, came up with that strategy really thought deeply and didn't do the obvious thing. Right. I mean, you know, the, the Taliban command did a good job. There's somebody that's really smart on that side. But it, it helps when you're up against people who are not doing the basics, you know, just just failing across the board. Again, when this started, didn't we have advisors that would have told the Afghani army what's happening here? If old Jim Rutt, armchair military history boy, immediately saw it as a brilliant coup, you would think some of these National War College dudes and West Point grads would have recognized what was going on here and warned the Afghanis, you got to stop here at the, and stop them in some of these cities in the north or you're, you're done. Yeah, it looks like the entire command was operating under the assumption, and, and a, it was a closely held assumption, that this was all going to be resolved through diplomacy, that it had already been negotiated. It was all just done, and uh, they didn't have to. And you know, to a certain extent, I think a, a, a lot of the senior leadership tried to stay away from this exit. I mean, they 
career-wise, they just didn't want to be associated with this, the tarnish associated with, with leaving Afghanistan. So they, they, they stayed away from the planning. They stayed away from the operational details. And that when, when the Taliban went to the, this maneuver phase, started really, you know, taking over the country very, very quickly, something happened. I, I, I was calling it like Uda Shir. Uda is the Boyd's decision-making loop, you know, observe, orient, decide, act. Yeah, let's, let's tell the audience what it is, which is observe, orient, decide, and act, which is a framework developed by John Boyd, who was a fighter pilot, I think in Korea, is that correct? Or was it after correct. Korea? Yep. He came up with this extraordinarily interesting doctrine, which is applicable to all kinds of things, that sort of the efficacy of your ability to maneuver, let's say in battle, because that's what it was developed for originally, but it works in business too. I always engineered my companies to execute faster OODA loops. And if you can run faster OODA loops than the other guys, you have a gigantic strategic and sustainable advantage. Right. Well, in this case, the, the assumptions that that OODA loop the commands loop was based on had changed had and altered, and uh, they didn't know, have a way to actually start a new one. They were unwilling to start a new one, and they were it's kind of a disbelief, an inability to shift. So, what part of the loop broke? So we have observe, we have orient, we have decide, and we have act. I think it's uh, orientation. Orientation is the, the most important part. It, it broke in a very deep way. And orient essentially means make sense of the situation, essentially. Correct. They, they failed to make sense. And orient is you know, pointed in the general direction of a solution. And if you're pointed over here. Diplomacy. Right. Yeah, diplomacy. And it starts to move over here. That if you can't shift or you're unwilling to shift or unwilling to admit that it needs to shift, you're going to be stuck trying to solve a problem that actually can't be solved in that direction. Again, you know, once the Taliban started taking the North, diplomacy went away as an option, or at least potentially did. So that's the point when someone should have shifted their OODA loop to a maneuver OODA loop, as you say. And, and, and of course, the real shame is the U.S. Army was designed to fight battles of maneuver, right? We have that capability in spades. Right. We're the best maneuver fighters in the world, probably, except maybe the Israelis. Well, I mean, last week they were trying to negotiate with the Taliban to slow down. Right. And the uh, intelligence assessment that the, the leadership was using that, oh, boy, about six days ago, seven days ago, was that, it, you know, the Afghan government may possibly collapse within 90 days. Right. I mean, it's just here. Kabul is falling and that assessment's still there. I mean, granted, there are people on the, you know, inside the organization trying to update it, but that was the thing that they were still working on. It was so out of step and the whole organization, you know, just wasn't prepared to make that kind of shift. Yeah, when you're in a position that, that's going to fall in 10 days, you should be operating a very rapid OODA loop and presumably reacting violently where necessary to buy yourself more time and space. Oh, yeah, it should have been clear on the ground. I mean, here you are in this kind of landlocked city. I mean, all of the surrounding countries are relatively hostile or, or um, non-permissive, and um, you can't launch kind of air support missions out of those countries to support you, you know, going the 200-mile missions. Uh, all you can do is is fly your missions from bases a thousand miles away or more, and you're in the city and you're cut off and disconnected to a large degree. And that you should adapt your plans when the conditions change, and you have to adapt them very quickly. You have to you know come up with ways to kind of minimize the chance that you're going to actually be completely isolated. Well, what would you have done? Say 10 days ago, two weeks ago, once it became clear that the situation was evolving very rapidly, what could have been done? Well, I would have opened up Bagram. I would have retaken it, set up a perimeter there, had that serve as, as the primary base of, of Exfil. And then I would have started running operations to bring people in using helicopter primarily to 
mostly the, the visa holders and accelerated that process. So people who had the potential to be visa holders, I would have brought them and put them on the base. And so it would be separated, physically separated from the rest of the city. And, and those people outside the fence who would probably go up with cars and other things would, would, would still be outside the fence. And that uh, it was a defensible position. And, and that now you know, the problem with the making decisions like that is that you got to do some of that, but you can't get the rest of the government to follow through especially if they're caught in this Udish year, they're, they're unable to kind of shift, but you can give them options. So I'm think, trying to think about this. What really happened was the tempo changed and nobody picked up on it. Well, I mean, we shifted for more, uh, yeah. I mean, guerrilla warfare is a very long and drawn out. Yeah, it moved slowly, you know, but suddenly but when it switched to maneuver and clearly they were doing extremely well at maneuver. And, you know, two weeks ago, you know, again, once the North started to fall, it came clear to me that this 90 days was just horseshit. It could easily happen in two weeks. And if you're in the position where we're no longer in the long game of guerrilla warfare, but rather in the short game of maneuver and the other guy is maneuvering well, Right. You should have switched the tempo of your OODA loop to much faster. Yeah, and, and now we've switched, uh, the Taliban has switched to kind of attrition or siege warfare, which is mostly kind of a physical wearing down and, and disconnection. So you try to disconnect the enemy more and more and more from, from sources of strength and, and they, to the point where they just can't operate. And so, uh, you know, inevitably that will end up, if they continue pushing along that, that line, is toward disconnecting the airport, closing it down. Or not, depending on how much we bribe them. Yeah, I mean, depending on that. But I mean, here's a, here's a group of folks that we've spent the last 20 years killing with a bandit. I mean, the moment we saw them, we killed them. You know, imprisoning them, uh, occasionally torturing them. Given, you know, of course, those were illegal operations, and they many of them were prosecuted. So I mean, they hate us, and rightfully so. And they committed their fair share of atrocities too. So this is that's you know, true. Your classic I mean, ugly war, right? Oh yeah, definitely. And so uh, betting that they will let us just leave. And that it's in their best interest. I've had plenty of people push back on my my thinking on this saying, oh, you know, it's in the Taliban's best interest to actually wait till we leave. I mean, <laughs> you know, you know, their best interest is to humiliate the United States to the extent that is possible. So won't come back. This is it. clearly up to that level. Extract as much in terms of concessions as they possibly can. And there may even be kind of, a, you know, since there's a, an honor culture element here is gaining things that other than money or other than what we consider important is potentially forcing the U.S. to do an overland retreat. So, you know, a convoy of, of U.S. military and, and, and civilians heading out overland, you know, out of Kabul, you know, leaving a, a way out once they're besieged, once the airport's shut. So they end up having to go to Pakistan and then beg for entry. And they could, we could be slaughtered along the way, too. Well, you know? yeah, you could slaughter them or, or not even do it. But the, the, the images of it, uh, at least, uh, you know, from an honored perspective, from a, you know, kind of medieval mindset is is just it's classic. It's more valuable than gold. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see because, uh, yeah, again, on the one side, there's a pragmatic argument for letting the U.S. leave but extract the most in return, such as, you know, the freeing of the assets, maybe demand formal recognition, et cetera, or pull a Dien Bin Phu and basically utterly humiliate the United States. Yeah, or when you when you listen to a lot of jihadis, they have constant reference to historical examples. And in, in you know, the 1842 uh, retreat from Kabul, the, where the Brits and, and the civilians are trying to get out and they were killed, I think, down to the last man. One guy survived retreating from Kabul all the way to Pakistan through the Khyber Pass is like, 
that's the classic. That's a historical kind of win. It's it's part of their pride. It's, it, and if they could recreate that in this instance, that would be a worry for me. I, you know, is I have to think the way they think, and if they think that way, yeah, that's bad news for us. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to say I'm not going to make a call on this one. It could go either way. It depends on how much geopolitical maturity the Taliban have developed in their time out of power. Because if they are actually geopolitically mature, humiliating the U.S., which they've already done, extracting things of substantial value and then letting them limp out of Dodge might actually be optimal. But as you point out, 20 years ago, they were clearly a medieval honor culture. And it may well be the honor win of you know total humiliation would be greater than the substantive and positional win from playing geopolitics. So I, I could go either way. I'm, I'm not, I don't, I don't see, I have the scales on this one listening to you and thinking about it. And I don't see which way it'll go. Could go either way, but it's a goddamn bad news that we put the decision in their hands. Exactly. And um, they're not a cohesive entity. So we tend to think of, you know, there's a chain of command and there is to a certain extent, but there are elements uh, within the Taliban, of course, that are doing a lot of the killings that we're seeing around the country right now, where they're killing ex-military folks, killing their families. And any one of them could spark this thing off and move it in that direction. So uh, it's chaotic. You, you know, it's not I wouldn't want to be in a situation or put U.S. troops in a situation. This is what you know made me so angry for the last week and you know sad and frustrated at the same time because they're not you know, taking advantage of the, uh, the options available or making options available. You know, our military command just didn't do the job in preserving enough options for themselves. And again, was that vetoed by the civilian side or the military, as you say, well, this is a retreat, a loss, a disgrace in any case, even if it works smoothly, I don't really want to invest my career credentials uh, in this thing. And nobody was home paying attention, perhaps. Oh, yeah. You could see the senior leadership's just trying to stay away from this. I mean, there was talk inside the White House that no one even wanted to address this because the taint would be on their political careers. And that the folks on the ground were being told by the diplomacy folks and almost assuredly that anything that would retake, like a retake Bagram would be seen as an offensive action or would be retreat from the kind of diplomatic process. And they still believed in the diplomatic process, even though it was no longer operational once the Taliban had taken the North. Right. So that's just pure piss poor performance. Well, let's change perspectives here and go all the way back. And I will pat myself on the back since 2002, I've been saying it's been a fool's errand to try to turn Afghanistan into a pluralistic Western democracy. Ain't going to happen, people. And that we should have, I said at the time, we should have spent nine months on the ground securing as much as we could for the Northern Alliance, paid them a $2 billion a year stipend to make sure that Al-Qaeda is not able to operate at least openly, and then just left and don't really give a shit on how the Northern Alliance, you know, did things, right? Because Northern Alliance, they were no saints either, but they uh, certainly weren't as atavistic as the Taliban. And in a place like Afghanistan, the difference between bad and worse is bigger than the difference between good and better. Right. But instead, we just made one of the classic mistakes. And of course, you know, those who don't study history are destined to repeat it. There's a reason Afghanistan is called the graveyard of empires. You know, the Brits tried twice, got their ass kicked both times. The Russians got there totally humiliated. And in fact, one of the factors leading to the downfall of the Soviet Union. And somehow we think that we can go in there and turn Afghanistan into Belgium or some fucking thing, right? Yeah, I, I was kind of lucky. I mean, I've been opposed to nation building 
from the get-go, also was able to kind of give my input at, at a kind of national level. I, I testified in front of the uh, House Armed Services Committee. Some of the congressmen had read my book and their staff asked me in, and I got on the congressional record saying, it's impossible, it's an impossible task. Don't waste time trying to build up the Afghan military or, or build up the government. Just figure out a way to make a hasty retreat. And, and I gave some options. Up. But, you know, I could see the mindset going into 2000, post-Cold War, there was an assumption that, you know, hey, liberal democracy had won, end of history. It's inevitable. The globalization, interconnection, interconnection of through the uh, the online world too is inevitable. And the only sources of potential danger given 9-11 would be sources of disconnection, you know, those dark areas in the world. And so all we have to do to kind of fix things is to accelerate their connection, their connectivity and connect them up. And it should be easy because we know the template. We know where they want to want to end up. What they fail to understand is that a nation building, I mean, there isn't a nation or of any size in the world today that didn't go through incredible trauma. I mean, incredible brutality in, in their formation process, getting rogue groups and, and different ideas you know, and stamping those out and forcing them into the kind of nation state, modern nation state mindset. I mean, we see a little bit of that right now in China, where they're doing kind of nation building in, 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 with the Uyghurs, you know, putting a million people in prison, uh, treating Islam as a kind of a mental disease and getting them to renounce it, sending a million civil servants to live in the households of the Uyghur uh, families that where the men have been taken out and said, you know, male civil servants living in households with them, trying to police them and, and threatening all sorts of stuff. And then, you know, tagging them and using kind of the surveillance state that we have now to kind of watch what they're doing and, and, and listen to, to every single conversation and, and uh, punish those who are not becoming uh, culturally assimilated into the Chinese nation. So that's what nation building looks like. It's a brutal, awful process. And, and there's nothing in the world that the U.S. would do. We're clumsy in many, many ways, but we're not intentionally brutal on that scale. And it wasn't our job anyway, right? Right, yeah. The other thing to remember is that Afghanistan is one of those relatively few countries that was never colonialized by an outside power. So they literally are still in the pre-modern world, unlike you know most countries that had at least some number of years experience with, let's say, Western colonial governments, some schooling, et cetera. None of that happened in Afghanistan. It's been its own little pocket since the time of Alexander the Great. Oh, yeah. Think of it as a three to four hundred year process with every nation in the world going from the kind of feudal monarchical system to the kind of modern nation state we have now and all of the trauma that each of these states went through to get there. It's amazing how clueless the best and the brightest have been. It's been around 2006. My wife and I had dinner with the guy. Uh, it was a group dinner out at Santa Fe Institute with a guy who was the head of the AID office in Afghanistan, which was one of the great leaks of billions and billions of dollars right down the fucking rat hole. And this guy was telling us stuff with a straight face, and he still believed in the mission. And we were all rolling our eyes, going, what the hell? Doesn't this guy, isn't he able to read the signals that we're just being played for fools and people are stealing, you know, making off with, you know, if five cents on the dollar was actually making it into constructive programs, I'd be surprised. 10 cents on a dollar, maybe. Yeah, on the grand strategy level, Afghanistan and Iraq were the worst distractions. I mean, you know, we should have been transitioning to, you know, look at China, looking at bringing up Russia and, and transitioning. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, just at the very moment, like in mid-2000s, mid just at the very moment that China was really ramping up, we had brought them into the WTO, 
we should have been negotiating with them um, to kind of moderate the kind of trade transfer and, and the deindustrialization that was going on across the United States, mitigating their rise in a way that that allowed them to prosper. But we assumed there was this kind of idea that if we just let the trade do its magic, that China would you know automatically become a liberal democracy and and spending all this time in the dead ends of the world in Iraq in the, in the uh, Afghanistan on these brain dead programs of nation building was the kind of wrong distraction it just you know sapped our energy and sapped our focus and we're paying the consequences right now you know in terms of our relationship with China and Russia yeah that was a really bad assumption the idea that trade would turn the chinese into as you say liberal d- democracy or at least open autocracy, right? You know, equivalent of Franco or something, but nope. You know, the Chinese are great people, probably the greatest people in world history in some ways. You know, they've had a continuity of culture longer than anybody else. And as it turned out, they decided to invent their own kind of hyper-fascism. Right. And they've done an amazingly good job on it, if you like that kind of thing, which I don't, but, you know, give them credit for developing state-of-the-art computer and network-powered and now cryptocurrency-powered and social reputation credit powered super fascism. And that should not have been outside the possible assumptions of trajectories. And yet it seemed to have been for a long time. Well, yeah, it was the same kind of optimism, that hyper-optimism of the inevitability of liberal democracy and global capitalism and and uh, freedoms and, and the like that, you know, we're all going to be integrated, all interconnected. And, and China was going to do that naturally. And, and we, could, we could accelerate it with these backward countries, these countries that were suffering under dictatorship or medieval value systems. Yeah, no, no, it's it, it, it's a huge disaster. <laughs> you know, any way you, any way you cut it. Interesting. Yeah. Another thing you've been talking about a lot, which is very much related to these things, is assumption rot. Why don't you tell us about your idea of assumption rot and how this ties into the, all these patterns? Yeah. It came to me, you know, when I'm looking at all of the different discussions we have over every single disaster that we've, we've encountered over the last 20 years. And we just don't talk about the right things associated with those those events. There are certain things that certain topics that aren't talked about, aren't focused on, and and those topics typically are at you know the the cause of the event. And I was trying to figure out why we were not doing it, and and typically the answer would be, oh, it's too complex. It, you don't understand. This is not that's not a real thing to address, or, or there are too many people that would be tarnished or damaged by it. Institutions would be hurt by it, and. What all of those topics had in common is that they were all core assumptions that we're using to build our society. Assumptions that are made in order to build institutions, assumptions that are you know, used in our systems, uh, what we you know, assume things to, the way things are meant to work. And you know, over time, as we you know, become more complex, you know, we, we build up this huge stack of assumptions, assumptions upon assumptions upon assumptions, and it's harder and harder to address or go after you know, changes uh, or you know, assumptions that are actually not valid anymore that are lower in that, that stack. And clearly, you know, as, as the environment changes, you know, those assumptions are going to decay, weaken, and rot. And the more they rot, the more they uh, cause problems and make it, you know, we're incapable of actually solving problems because that assumption rod isn't addressed. Why don't you give us some examples of what you think are, you know, fundamental assumptions that we have allowed to rot in our conduct of our society more broadly, but foreign affairs more specifically? Well, I mean, okay, so take the financial crisis. Now, trying to get out of the current situation, we assumed that at the behavior level that uh, bankers would not sell crap, stuff that they knew to be crap, 
um, to pension funds, to their customers, would not lie about it uh, en masse. That there wouldn't be tens of thousands of bankers willing to do that. And clearly, that's not the case, is that there were whole industries all up and down the chain of command in these different banks, different organizations, willing to sell CDOs and sell crappy derivatives to pension funds because it was a way to make money. They knew it was crap. They knew it had no very little value, and they still, they still sold it. And then we assumed also that the ratings agencies would take care of the situation, that the we have a market mechanism that created a rating agency that would actually look into this and, and, and raise the flags if there were problems. We assumed they couldn't be corrupted, that they would do the job. Well, we found out later that they were corrupted across the board. They paid huge settlements afterwards. You know, at a minor level in Afghanistan, uh, we had a assumption that diplomacy would be the way out of Afghanistan, and we st- stuck to it. And even though it was rotting away, as the conditions changed, uh, we were unwilling to address it. And that would have been an easy thing to, to fix. We still wouldn't talk about it. Like even right now in the news and in the discussions, no one's really putting the pressure on the, on the administration to kind of explain how they get people out if, if this goes bad. What options are they taking? There's no preposition. There's no readying of forces that are large enough to actually extract them if they run into problems. They're essentially stuck. And, and no one's putting pressure on the people to, that could make decisions on this to fix it. Again, you know, it's just uh, when the assumptions start going, I mean, it, it's just, it's, it's everywhere. And there are different levels and there are different types of assumptions. I'm just starting to get my head around them completely. And I'm starting to kind of flesh them out. And uh, I'll be writing some articles and a report on it. I'll have plenty more examples. Yeah, that's very disturbing. And I don't know what the answer is, but especially in a world that's moving as fast as this one is with exponential rates of change in our technical infrastructure and our social institutions being out of sync with our technical infrastructure and our cognitive capabilities also being out of sync with our technical infrastructure. If we're allowing our assumptions for sense making and choice making to rot, we're in an even worse state than than it seems like. It's a horrible mess. And even affects science. I mean, you have plenty of studies that serve as a kind of a core for a whole body of science, and people refer to them as a kind of the, the base case, and they build, you know, study after study, study references that core study, and it's not revisited. It's taken as fact. And then, you know, somebody comes back later and says, oh, this is wrong. And all of that other stuff is gone and called into question. So people don't want to address it. We saw it a little bit in the, um, in the Wuhan lab instance. It was pretty obvious, at least on a common sense level, that, you know, the Wuhan lab was probably the source of the, the virus, you know, versus, you know, lightning strike nature or the guy with the campfire, right? You know, which one started? If it happened right there, which one's more likely? Of course, the guy with the campfire, the lab leak, the human error. And um, people just would not look at it. They, you know, it was assumed that the process was safe and the methods that they're using all around the world is safe, that, you know, the Chinese wouldn't lie, you know, bup, 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 bup. these assumptions are, are, are tough. And, you know, you can see it in the, in the media and the discussions at the government level, they just will not address it, you know, particularly if they involve like core functions of, of institutions where you'd have to actually go back and, and fix the institution and fix the, fix the structure. Like, uh, okay, sending people to college, in the way we do. And uh, extending loans and having everybody go to four-year college 
at a ridiculous price. I did a, in fact, I just Correct. put out a podcast episode with Rob Tursick where we diagnose higher education. You know, we point out that at least compared to when I was an undergraduate, it's now 4X more expensive after controlling for inflation. Right. And if anything, the product is probably worse. The students are taking less credit hours. The courses are easier. What the fuck is going on here? This is, this is madness. Yeah, assume it's a good unto itself. It's not connected to the market. There's not giving, you know, people assuming that if they spend that money, they'll get something of value. There's no disclosure in terms of, you know, what it would be worth once they're finished, depending on the degree. There's no discussion over whether or not sending all of these people to college is actually a good and, you know, good for the economy, good for the people involved. So many assumptions that just aren't being addressed and can't be asked. You can't, you can't really, I mean, there's people criticizing it at the edges, but it's really not under consideration. Yeah, the establishment itself is not reviewing its own assumptions. So again, this comes back to assumption rot. You know, the idea that $300,000 for a a fancy college degree, now if you get one from Harvard, it'll probably pay off, but you get one from a couple levels down in the stack that's only slightly less expensive, probability that paying off is a hell of a lot less. And there's no transparency or honesty about that because there's these vast bureaucracies of people making good, fat, middle-class livings selling this scam, basically. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the minimum would be that they would actually disclose what the average graduate with that degree gets and then how much you're borrowing, how much you're likely to make, and whether or not you could actually service the loan once you're out. And I mean, here's these people making their the biggest financial decision in their life, and they're they're being sold a bill of goods, sold a sold swampland in Florida, and saying you can build a house there when it's like three feet underwater. Indeed, indeed. Yet another assumption, assumption rot, the assumption that fancy four year college is an absolute good no matter what it costs, right? Correct. And nobody has revisited that. Well, John, I want to thank you for it. As always, amazingly interesting survey and analysis, and we went deep pretty much into you know some of the things that are behind this. You know, I guess we'll all have to stay tuned to see if the uh, Taliban decide to utterly humiliate us, which they can, or will we bribe them somehow not to? Not a good place to be. Right. Yeah, I hope it doesn't end up. My worst fears aren't realized on this, but um, yeah. That they could be. All the best luck to those guys there. Yeah, they are. Uh, you know, they are our guys after all, right? Yep. Yep. Production services and audio editing by Jared Jane's Consulting. Music by Tom Muller at ModernSpaceMusic.com.